This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 4, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast, where we are still discussing the first 100 years of Islam after the Prophet's death, that is Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Today's episode will continue our focus on the early expansion of the Islamic Caliphate into Syria and the Levant. We will also go into some detail about the makeup of the Muslim army, as well as the transition from Abu Bakr to Omar ibn al Khattab. Show notes for this episode are available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Syria. Go there for links to all of the relevant articles that you will hear in this podcast. And with that, let's go ahead and get into the show. Here we go with the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 4. So let's recap where we are so far in the story. After the Prophet's death, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Abu Bakr was chosen as the caliph or the successor to the Prophet. Many of the Arabian tribes that were previously allied with Prophet Muhammad rebelled against Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr and his primary general, Khalid ibn Walid, launched a series of battles to subdue these rebellious tribes and bring them back under the fold of Abu Bakr's command. These battles were known as the Wars of Apostasy, also the Yuridda Wars. After the conclusion of the Yuridda Wars, and Abu Bakr was able to consolidate the Arabian tribes under his rule, Abu Bakr then commanded Khalid ibn Walid to invade Persia and begin to subdue the Sassanid Empire that was in control in that region. Ultimately, Khalid ibn Walid was able to conquer most of the Persian territory in the Euphrates River region. While Khalid ibn Walid was fighting in Persia, Abu Bakr simultaneously launched an invasion of the Roman Empire, what we now call the Byzantine Empire, starting in the region known as Syria at that time, but in our time, we would refer to it as modern-day nation of Jordan. However, before we get really deep into the story of the battles and all the things that transpired during this invasion of Syria, I thought it would be appropriate to discuss this Muslim army that was conquering these new regions. Exactly what kind of people made up the soldiers of this army? What kind of clothes did they wear? What kind of weapons did they use? How did they fight? Let's discuss the army a little bit more before we get into the actual fighting and the conquest of Syria. Truthfully, the Muslim army was little more than an organized mob. And this is not to put down or disrespect the men and women who partook in these battles. This is just to help you understand that this was not a conventional army that you are used to today. This was more like a very organized mob. Allow me to explain a little bit. 
There were no uniforms. The soldiers came with whatever clothes that they had available. Remember, when Abu Bakr needed to raise soldiers for the army, when he needed to fill out the ranks of the army, he simply sent out a message, made a call to the different tribes of Arabia and said, we need men, we need soldiers, we need fighters, come and join. And then the tribes would supply people to fight. Generally, these were volunteers. These were people who wanted to join the army and they willingly joined the military under Abu Bakr's command. But keep in mind that from the Prophet's time, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, up until Abu Bakr and even a little bit after his time, the Arabs were used to a very simple, unprofessional, unsophisticated form of tribal warfare. Now, there were rules, there were customs, but it wasn't the highly regimented and structured affair that we are used to these days. So there were no uniforms and there were no ranks. Now, there were commanders within the army, of course, Khalid ibn Walid in Persia, and initially Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah in Syria, they were the overall commanders of their respective armies. But under them, they still needed lower level or sub-commanders to carry out their orders and to make sure the battle plans were implemented. But the people who got to this rank, who got to this level of sub-commander under Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah and under Khalid ibn Walid, they did not rise through the ranks as you would expect in a traditional military. People were often chosen to be the, the commanders or the lieutenants under Khalid ibn Walid based upon merit based upon what they may have done the day before or in the previous battle. A person may have been chosen because they happened to be an influential member of their tribe and therefore it was thought that they could be more successful in commanding the other tribesmen who joined them in that battle. And just as quickly as someone could be chosen to be the commander of a specific group of soldiers under Khalid ibn Walid or under Abu Ubaidah, they could also just as easily be removed because they had no official rank. They were simply picked out of the crowd based upon their bravery or based upon their position within their tribe. And if they proved to be incompetent or unsuccessful or just not good soldiers, they would be removed and someone else would be placed in their command. The weapons they used were also very crude. They pretty much brought whatever weapons they had on them. There were no standard issue swords or shields or anything like that. Individual soldiers who joined the military from their tribes, they brought whatever they had at home. And so some people had good weapons and some had not so good weapons. They generally used the weapons that you would expect from that period of time. Lots of swords, javelins, spears, some decent shields, often made out of wicker, some metal or leather. And they also had armor of sorts, not real armor that we may think of like medieval knights or anything like that. But they often had simple leather armor, tough animal skin to help cushion some of the blows that they might receive. But it would have been rare for anyone to have true armor. Khalid ibn Walid himself, he was known to have chain mail, which is like interlocking chains of metal. He was known to have that. And there were probably other soldiers who had similar things. Chain mail could definitely have been obtained before they actually joined the military. But these soldiers would only be able to upgrade their weapons and their armor 
after a victory or after a battle. So when the Muslims did defeat one of their enemies, the individual soldiers would very often strip the dead soldiers from the opposite side of their weapons, their swords and their shields and their armor. And so over time, over time, their weapons did improve. And that may explain why over time the Muslims just got better and better and began to steamroll over their enemy. In the beginning, when they first started fighting first against the Murtadin during the Wars of Apostasy and then against the Persians, they were just using crude and rudimentary weapons, whatever they had available. But they were still winning even with that. Once they got the experience and then they were able to take good weapons from their dead enemies, they still had the same skills, the same fervor, the same battle plans. And now they had the experience and now they had upgraded weapons. And so you can see how as the battles progressed, as the Muslims pushed deeper and deeper into Persia and Syria, they just became nearly unstoppable. Now, one of the biggest problems that armies have to deal with is supply chain. It is just not easy to feed and clothe and care for thousands of soldiers on extended trips miles and miles, maybe even hundreds of miles away from home. It is just not easy to do that. Different militaries of different periods of history and different regions of the world, they figured out different ways to handle this problem. If you listen to some of our previous episodes when we spoke about the British invasion of Afghanistan, we spoke about how the British army, even during the 1800s, how they would travel with so many camp followers behind them, so many people who would provide different services for the British soldiers. That's something that many militaries had to do. They had to carry hundreds, maybe even thousands of civilians to provide food and other necessary things for the soldiers who were doing the fighting. And while that may be a solution, it is not the best solution because not only do the soldiers have to keep themselves alive, they also have to protect these defenseless civilians that they depend on. Another option that different armies have used over time to combat this problem of supplies was to simply live off of the land. When they conquered a region, they would just confiscate the agriculture and the animals and the goods from that area and live off of it. And they will stock up and then move on to the next land. And then once they conquered that one, do the same thing. The Muslims of this time, however, they didn't really have to worry about either one of those options. Now, definitely many of the soldiers, even in the Muslim army, they traveled with civilians. Many of them traveled with their wives and their children and their servants. But it was nothing like the huge chain of civilians that traveled along with militaries of the early 1800s or during the Roman era or anything like that. Nothing compared to that. And as far as living off the land was concerned, yes, when they got to certain regions, they could live off of the land. But much of the area that we're speaking about in these episodes was mostly desert. There just wasn't too much living off of the land that could be done. It just wasn't possible. But fortunately, the Arabs and the Muslims of this time didn't really have to worry about maintaining a large supply chain. They didn't have to maintain a base of headquarters. They were able to go far distances 
and conquer huge swaths of land far away from home because the Arabs had something unique that many other people of that time just did not have. They were used to living off of very little. Whereas most people need a varied diet to get by, the Arabs at that time, they were used to living off of simply dates and water. So if the only food supplies you have to carry with you is some dates and water and you have your camel to provide milk for you, then you're set. You can travel long distances. And that's what the Arabs did for so long. Remember, maybe you don't remember, but we have mentioned this before. Meccan society were mostly merchants. They would travel long distances with nothing but some dates and some water and their camel. If you have those things and you know what you're doing and you're used to living off of just dates and water, you can do a whole lot. And that's a major reason why the Muslims of this time were so successful. They were able to travel far from Medina, far from Arabia and continue conquering and move on from there without having to either ravage the land to keep their military fed and supplied, nor do they have to maintain this huge supply chain going all the way back to Medina to keep food coming back. So this is why they were able to push so far and do so well in such a short period of time. Also, Khalid ibn Walid didn't have to have a base of operations. Khalid ibn Walid wasn't your typical general sitting somewhere in a fortified castle making that his new headquarters. The headquarters traveled with him. He was the headquarters. Another tactical advantage that the Muslims had was that they often, as best as they could, tried to fight close to the desert. Unless they were attacking a large city, the Muslims would often fight with their backs to the desert. That way, in case things went sideways, they could always just pull back and retreat into the desert and no Roman or Persian soldier in his right mind was going to try to follow them into the desert. That would be suicide. Okay, so now that you have a little bit of understanding about how the army under Khalid ibn Walid and Abu Ubaidah was operating, let's get it back into the Muslim campaign into Syria. As you may recall from the last episode, Abu Bakr had sent four armies into the Roman territory. At the time, this area was known as Asham, or what we would translate as Syria today. However, this should not be confused with the modern nation-state of Syria. A more appropriate name would be the Levant. This would include parts of modern-day Saudi Arabia, modern-day Syria, modern-day Jordan, modern-day Lebanon, as well as some parts of modern-day Turkey, Palestine, the State of Israel. It would include that entire region. Abu Bakr sent four armies into this area, and they began to conquer several small towns, small settlements. No big cities at first. As mentioned, Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah, he was the overall commander of these four armies in Syria. And though Abu Ubaidah was a pious person, he was, as we mentioned, perhaps the ninth person to accept Islam under Prophet Muhammad From a spiritual point of view, he had a very very high rank among the Muslims. However, he was not the brave, sometimes reckless individual that would just throw caution to the wind, yet use brilliant strategy and tactics to overcome an enemy. He was not the 
military mind that Khalid ibn Walid was. Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah was a pious person, but he was not the best military commander. Nonetheless, in the beginning, these four armies under Abu Ubaidah in Syria were actually quite successful. As we mentioned, they conquered some small settlements and Yazid ibn Abu Sufyan wound up capturing the city known as Philadelphia at that time, which is modern-day Amman, Jordan. But as the Muslims pushed further and further into Syria, the Romans began to consolidate their forces and they began to push back. So Abu Ubaidah took these four armies that were under four different leaders and were on four different missions. He combined them into one large force in order to meet the Roman challenge. But even with these armies united into one large force, they were still severely outnumbered by the Romans. Keep in mind, the situation in Syria was vastly different from the situation that Khalid ibn Walid was facing in Persia. Much of Khalid ibn Walid's success could be attributed to the dysfunction of the Persian ruling family. While Khalid ibn Walid was facing a government that was barely able to hold it together, Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah over in Syria, he was facing a Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire that was consolidated, that was united, and they had a functional government under an emperor that they respected and obeyed. So the Roman response to the Muslim invasion was much more organized, much more thought out, much better planned, and even much more effective than the Persian response. They still wound up with the same result. They did wind up losing, but they were nowhere near the pushovers that the Persians were. So it wasn't too long before Abu Ubaidah realized that his forces were outnumbered and he was going to need some reinforcements if they were going to be successful in this campaign. So Abu Ubaidah sent word back to Medina asking Abu Bakr to send him some reinforcements. When Abu Bakr received the message from Abu Ubaidah, he then sent word to Khalid ibn Walid, who was just wrapping up his campaign in Persia, to leave off the Persian campaign and take some soldiers with him and assist Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah over in Syria. So Khalid ibn Walid took 10,000 of his experienced and veteran soldiers and left Persia, which is really modern-day Iraq, and made his way towards Syria, a journey of over 500 miles through treacherous desert. And the story of how he got through this desert is nothing short of amazing. It is just incredible that Khalid ibn Walid was able to Cross this desert with 10,000 men. As I mentioned in the last episode, Khalid ibn Walid's true genius was his speed of implementation, how fast he was. He could move like lightning in relative terms. While the enemy was still trying to figure out what was going on, he had hit them five or six times and was moving on to the next battle. Khalid ibn Walid was fast. 
And combined with his ability to move men over large distances in a short period of time, he was also extremely brave and very determined. So when the caller Ibn Walid made his mind up to do something, there was very, very little that could stop him, especially when it came to the battlefield. When Khalid ibn Walid received the command from Abu Bakr to assist Abu Ubaidah in Syria, he knew he had to find some way to get across that desert. So he went in search of a village or a settlement or some people who lived in the area and knew the desert pretty well. He finally found one and asked one of the men there for advice on how he could get across the desert. This is what the man told him. He needed to get 30 camels and keep them thirsty for about seven days. Once they were sufficiently thirsty, they were to be allowed to drink, the camels that is. When the camels had drunk as much as they could, they were then supposed to travel with the camels along with their horses and all the soldiers and 10,000 men through the desert. And every time they encamped, they were going to slaughter 10 of the camels and take the water out from the camel's belly. Once the water had cooled down, they would give the water to the horses and the men would eat the meat. The reason for this was that it wasn't really a problem for the men, for the soldiers to carry enough water to last them. So long as they can find some sort of oasis or some sort of spring in the desert along the way, the men would be okay. However, carrying water for horses was very impractical. Also, if the horses died along the way, which horses could easily do, then the whole journey would be over before things even started. So while water was definitely important for the soldiers themselves, it was even more important for the horses. And that is why they had to make sure they carried enough water within the bellies of the camels for the horses. The plan with the camels only got Khalid and his army through the first two stages of the journey. Eventually, they ran out of camels to kill, and they still had several hundred miles to travel before reaching Abu Ubaida and the others in Syria. Fortunately, Khalid ibn Walid had brought the villager who had given him the idea of the 30 camels in the first place along with him. So Khalid ibn Walid expressed his concern that his men would probably not make it to Syria if they didn't find water very soon. The villager told them to keep traveling and let him know when they reached a certain part of the journey. So they traveled a little bit further until they reached the area of the desert known as Sawah. Khalid informed the villager that they had reached Sawah and the man dismounted from his camel and began to look around the desert here and there. Khalid and his soldiers just stayed back watching the man as he browsed through the sand and the gravel and the rocks of the desert until he finally came to a tree. When he came to the tree, he shouted Allahu Akbar. And the other men in Khalid's camp, they heard him shout Allahu Akbar. And so they also shouted Allahu Akbar. They didn't know what he was shouting about, but they knew he was happy about something. So they went to the villager to see what he was shouting about. And he was pointing to the tree and he told them, dig here, dig here. And so they immediately started digging near the vicinity of the tree. And before long, they came across an underground spring with enough water to satisfy them and all of their animals and fill their bags. And with that, Khalid ibn Walid was able to complete his journey through the desert 
until he reached Syria. And in another story that I've heard about this very same story through the desert, this man, this villager who found this location, he had only been there once before, and that was as a little boy with his father many, many years earlier. While Khalid ibn Walid and his 10,000 soldiers were trying to make their way over 500 miles of desert, Abu Ubaidah and his army were bogged down in a battle at Basra in Syria, and they were not doing very well. They were heavily outnumbered by the Romans, so much so that the Romans were confident enough to leave their fortress in Basra and come out and fight the Muslims in the field. The hope of the Romans were to use their superior numbers to encircle and outflank Abu Ubaidah's army and crush them from within. So Abu Ubaidah and his soldiers were not necessarily fighting to win. At this stage of the battle, Abu Ubaidah's main concern was to simply survive, not get outflanked by the Romans, and hold out long enough for reinforcements to come from Medina. He didn't know that the reinforcements that Abu Bakr had sent were actually Khalid ibn Walid coming over from Persia. And as the story goes, and this is probably early Muslim writers being a little overdramatic, Abu Ubaidah and his army were doing their very best to stay alive and were struggling and were just barely able to hold off the Romans who were crushing them with superior numbers. Just as all hopes seemed lost over the crest of a hill as the sun was rising, rode Khalid ibn Walid and his cavalry of 10,000 soldiers. And according to the story, it was not simply the fact that 10,000 soldiers were coming to reinforce Abu Ubaidah that terrified the Romans. It was not even the fact that these soldiers were coming out of nowhere and had seemingly appeared mysteriously out of the desert. The main thing that terrified the Romans was when they learned the leader of this cavalry was none other than Khalid ibn Walid, Saifullah, the sword of Allah, the man who had crushed the Persians. When the Romans heard this, they turned tail, left the battlefield, and ran back into their fortress. Once again, some of this is perhaps a little overdramatized by early Muslim writers, but nonetheless, it is interesting to hear about. Well, Khalid ibn Walid and his 10,000 soldiers, they joined Abu Ubaidah and his army, and together they made a force of about 20,000 soldiers. Khalid ibn Walid assumed command over the entire Syria operation, and Abu Ubaidah became his second in command. Khalid ibn Walid then instructed the soldiers to lay siege to the fortresses of Basra, and within a few days, they surrendered, and Basra was the first major victory for the Muslims in Syria. Okay, now just so you can have some sort of mental map about how the plan of attack from Khalid ibn Walid was formulated, keep in mind if you understand your Middle East geography a little bit, you would know that where Abu Ubaidah and his forces were in Syria is more or less towards the western part of the Middle East Peninsula, just above Arabia, not too far from the Mediterranean Sea. Whereas Khalid ibn Walid, while he was in Persia, they were towards the east, towards what we now call Iraq and Iran. 
When Khalid ibn Walid made the journey across the desert, he was traveling from east to west. So now he was in the western part of the region, and his intention was to continue the battle west towards the Mediterranean Sea, but then turn north and head towards Damascus, which was the major Roman city in the Levant in Syria. Now, of course, this path would naturally include Jerusalem. However, Kala ibn Walid knew that Jerusalem was a very important city for the Romans and for Christians in general, as it is for Jews and Muslims. But at this point of time, it was under the control of the Roman Christian Empire. And he knew that due to its spiritual and political importance, the Romans would have garrisoned that city heavily with large numbers of soldiers. And it would have been a very difficult task to wrest it from their hands. And so Khalid ibn Walid, he made a point not to attack Jerusalem just yet. He wanted to leave Jerusalem alone, go after Damascus, get that city and then come back and handle Jerusalem later. So instead, the next major battle was the Battle of Ajnadain, which took place in the city of Ajnadain, but it is in the state of the modern-day Israel or Palestine, whichever is your preference, just to the west of the Dead Sea. And in fact, it is also only 25 miles east from the Mediterranean Sea. So right now, the Muslims were very, very close to the coastline of the Levant. Emperor Heraclius, when he heard about the defeat at Basra, he decided to send even more soldiers down into Syria to help protect his territory from the invading Muslims. And so he sent down 250,000 soldiers to counteract Khalid ibn Walid and Abu Ubaidah and the other Muslims. 90,000 of them made camp in the city of Ajnadain. The rest were separated between other important cities along the way through to Damascus. When Khalid ibn Walid and his forces arrived at Ajnadain, remember, they only had about 20,000 people in total. And roughly half of them had come with Abu Ubaidah up from Medina, and they were not used to fighting such large forces. The other half, however, came with Khalid ibn Walid from Persia. They were veterans of the battles in Persia, and they were used to being outnumbered on the battlefield. However, for those that came with Abu Ubaidah, this was new to them. They had never seen such a large force of enemies facing against them. 90,000 soldiers versus just 20,000 on their side. But this wasn't Basra. There would be no hiding inside of fortresses. There would be no siege. There would be no peaceful surrender. This battle was absolutely important for both sides. For the Romans, if they didn't stop Khalid ibn Walid and the Muslims at this juncture at Ajnadain, then there would be nothing in between the Muslims and Damascus. Damascus was the real prize as that was the de facto capital of the area. The Romans didn't want it to get to that. They wanted to stop the Muslims here at Ajnadain before Khalid ibn Walid made a beeline for Damascus. And on the other side, for the Muslims, it was equally as important for them. They had to get through Ajnadain and defeat this large force because almost certainly the battle at Damascus would be even worse. There were two things that Khalid ibn Walid did to give himself the best chance for victory. 
First, he took a reserve force of 4,000 men and put them to the side under Yazid ibn Abu Sufyan. Their purpose was not to join the fight immediately. They were to hold off to the side and not join the battle until Khalid ibn Walid gives them the signal. The next thing that Khalid ibn Walid did was stretch his lines out very, very far and very, very long. Meaning he stretched his lines of soldiers out very far in order to prevent them from being outflanked. The Romans, when their soldiers came out to meet the Muslims in battle, they did a similar thing. They stretched their lines out just as long as Khalid ibn Walid had stretched his lines of soldiers out. However, the Romans' lines were much, much deeper than the Muslims were. Before the battle started, a Roman priest came out to discuss things with Khalid ibn Walid and try to bring a peaceful solution to the current battle. Of course, Khalid ibn Walid's solution was always the same. It's either going to be you accept Islam and come under the command of Abu Bakr, or you will keep your religion, but you will have to pay the jizya and understand that you are a subjugated people, or we will let the swords sort things out. The priest, of course, decided that there was nothing left to do but to fight, and he returned back to his ranks. The battle started with both sides shooting volley after volley of arrows after each other. The Romans had the advantage in this because, number one, they had more arrows, and number two, they had better bows and arrows. And so the Romans were able to shoot deeper and further than the Muslims were, and they could lean further back and avoid the Muslims' arrows who couldn't shoot as far. In this respect, the Romans had a serious advantage, and they were able to impress upon the Muslims just how numerous their forces were and just how serious of a battle was ahead for them. When the Romans shot their arrows into the sky, and I know this may sound cliche, but they were so numerous that the sky was darkened out. And the Muslim forces were just astounded at how many soldiers they would have to face. After the two sides had finished shooting arrows at each other came the individual duels with individual Muslim champions squaring off against individual Roman champions. In this respect, the Muslims had the upper hand and they were able to kill several of the Roman champions, which served to demotivate the enemy, the Romans, and help to motivate the Muslims, especially since the Romans usually sent their commanders and officers to these duels, whereas the Muslims who didn't really have ranks and labels and titles, they would just send out the best fighter that they could find or the person who was most eager to go out there and do something. So when all was said and done, as far as these duels were concerned, the Romans had lost several of their top commanders and officers. When the dueling was done and the arrow shooting was done, then came the real battle. The two sides squared off and they clashed against each other when Khalid ibn Walid ordered his forces into an all-out assault. And they fought throughout the day and only finally stopped fighting when it just became too dark and the two sides retreated to their individual camps. After that first day of fighting, the Romans counted their losses and realized they had lost thousands of soldiers and several of their best officers and leaders, whereas the Muslims had only lost a few hundred soldiers in total. The Romans realized they couldn't continue like this and had to find some way to change things into their favor. And from their perspective, 
their main obstacle was not the soldiers themselves, they had to get rid of the commander, Khalid ibn Walid. And so the Roman general, he decided that on the day of the battle, he would treat Khalid ibn Walid and try to kill him before the battle even started. The next morning, when the two sides lined up for battle, the Roman commander, he called to meet with Khalid ibn Walid. The two leaders met in the center. The Roman general's plan was to lure Khalid ibn Walid out into the open and then have his soldiers ambush him and kill him while they were pretending to discuss peace. What the Romans did not know is that Khalid ibn Walid had found out about that plan and had actually killed the Roman ambushers before things had gotten started. And the Roman general did not know that his plan was completely torn to pieces. So while the Roman general was talking peace with Khalid ibn Walid, Khalid was just playing along until at the last moment, Khalid ibn Walid let the general know that he knew about the plan and immediately attack the general. The general was a great fighter himself. However, ultimately Khalid ibn Walid killed him and this was a severe moral blow to the Romans. Then Khalid ibn Walid once again called out for an all-out assault and the Muslims forces rode forward and the two sides clashed. However, without their primary general and with so many of their best officers killed during the duels, the Romans didn't really stand a chance. And before long, they were routed and were running off for safety and trying to flee the Muslims. And they lost thousands upon thousands upon thousands of soldiers. This was one of the most crushing defeats for the Romans. And they lost lots of wealth, lots of lives. And they also lost the city of Ajnadain. And now there was nothing standing between Khalid ibn Walid and his main goal, the city of Damascus. After taking a few days to rest up and to put in place the jizya system in Ajnadain, Khalid ibn Walid got his forces together and they turned towards Damascus and made the long march towards the crowning jewel of the Byzantine Empire. Now, there were a couple of smaller battles between Khalid ibn Walid and the Romans on the way to Damascus, but Khalid ibn Walid easily won both of them, and they did not stop his progress whatsoever. Before we actually discuss the Battle of Damascus, let's talk about the city of Damascus in and of itself. It is one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. Now, I want you to listen to the names that different cultures and different civilizations gave the city of Damascus and see how similar they are. The ancient Egyptians, they called it Timsqua. The Akkadians call it Damasca. The ancient Hebrews called it Damasek. In Arabic, it is called Damashki. All of these names all referring to this one great city. The word that we use, Damascus, is actually more or less related to the Greek word for the same city. Alexander the Great conquered Damascus in 323 BC, and the great Roman general Pompey, he conquered it about 250 years later. When the Roman Empire split into two halves, and if you don't remember that story, please refer to the last episode, but when the Roman Empire split into two halves, Syria, Damascus, and the entire Levant, for that matter, became part of the Eastern Roman Empire, what we now call the Byzantine Empire. Outside of the city of Jerusalem, Damascus 
was the most important Roman city in the Levant. Here's what the book Sword of Allah had to say about Damascus. Damascus was known as the paradise of Syria, a glittering metropolis which contained everything that makes a city great and famous. It had wealth, culture, temples and troops. It had history. The main part of the city was enclosed by a massive wall 11 meters high, but outside the battlements lay some suburbs which were not protected. The fortified city was a mile long and half a mile wide and was entered by six gates. The East Gate, the Gate of Thomas, the Jebiya Gate, the Gate of Faradiz, the Kizan Gate, and the Small Gate. What this book is basically saying is that Damascus was a very important city. It was very wealthy and it was very well protected. Now, the Romans knew that Khalid ibn Walid was on his way to Damascus, but they were not really prepared for a battle. They definitely were not prepared for a siege. Damascus had a large population for the time, well over 100,000 people, and it was going to take weeks to stockpile food and materials for a long siege that was expected. And we mentioned earlier how Heraclius had sent down a quarter of a million soldiers into the Levant to counter Khalid ibn Walid. But the vast majority of them, 90,000, went to Ajnadain and to Jerusalem. They did not know that Khalid ibn Walid had no intention of attacking Jerusalem just yet. They were really hoping that the forces in Ajnadain and Jerusalem would keep Khalid ibn Walid tied down long enough for them to properly fortify and stockpile Damascus. There were two things they weren't expecting. The Romans were not expecting for Khalid ibn Walid to deal with Ajnadain in barely two days, and they weren't expecting him to bypass Jerusalem. And that put a wrench into their plans. So while Jerusalem was well protected, Damascus was waiting for more soldiers to arrive. And of course, in addition to soldiers, they still had regular civilians, regular people who had to eat and had to live throughout a long siege. And Damascus just wasn't prepared for that. And the reason the Romans weren't really prepared was their own arrogance. They really did not take the Muslims as a serious threat until the Battle of Ajnadain, when they saw how quickly the Muslims were able to defeat their forces at Ajnadain. That's when the Romans knew, okay, these guys mean business. They were the most powerful nation in the world at that time. They did not expect for Khalid ibn Walid to deal such a severe blow to them. Keep in mind, the Romans and the Persians had been battling and quarreling and haggling back and forth for centuries. And just 15 years prior to these events, the Romans had actually defeated the Persians. And in fact, that battle is discussed and briefly in the Quran in Surah Tururum. Furthermore, since the Persian government was in such disarray, the Romans were pretty secure in the fact that they were safe from any external threats. They really didn't take the Arabs and the Muslims as a serious threat until they lost Ajnadain. Then they realized that this was a serious threat. Certainly, had they taken the Muslims more seriously, they would have taken much better precautions and they would have been much more sincere in their preparations for a battle and a siege at Damascus. 
as it was, the city of Damascus had a large population, a very small surplus of food, and only about 15,000 soldiers. The governor of Damascus was a man named Thomas, who also happened to be the emperor's brother-in-law. Thomas was determined to put up as good of a fight as he could, even though he knew he was at a serious disadvantage. So he sent out a few thousand of his soldiers to try to delay the Muslims and hold them off, keep them at a good distance away from the city. This advanced Roman party, this advanced Roman force engaged with the Muslims about 12 miles outside the city. There were a few duels between the two sides and eventually there was an actual battle. This time the Muslims had the numerical advantage and the Romans had to eventually retreat and return back inside the walls of the city. The next day Khalid ibn Walid arrived at the city and broke his army up into several different factions placing one group at each of the six entrances to Damascus. The Muslim forces, remember, numbered roughly around 20,000, while Thomas's forces inside of Damascus were only about 15,000. The Romans were by no means about to come out of the city and face Khalid ibn Walid man to man. They were going to sit down and hunker and prepare for a long siege as best as they could and hope that Heraclius would send reinforcements before too long. Khalid ibn Wali knew this and he set his own men down and prepared for a long siege as well. However, he made sure all of the entrances to the city were covered, all six gates that is, so that the Romans would have a very hard time sending word back and forth. However, a city is a city and it is very big and most cities have several entrances that people may not know about. So even though Khalid ibn Walid was able to seal off the main entrances to the city, there was no way he was going to completely seal the city up and never allow anything in or out. Thomas's messengers were able to slip past the Muslims and get word to Heraclius that the city of Damascus was in dire straits and really needed some support. Heraclius responded by ordering 12,000 soldiers from the nearby city of Emesa to go to Damascus and lend them a hand. Here we're going to see another example of Khalid ibn Walid's genius, his speed of implementation. When he learned that the 12,000 soldiers were on their way from Emesa to Damascus, he did not wait for them to come. He decided to meet them halfway. And this shows how fast Khalid ibn Walid could move when he was determined to do something. He left roughly 4,000 soldiers at Damascus to give the illusion that the siege was still in place. Then he took the rest of his soldiers traveled up the road to meet those coming from Emesa, met them in battle, engaged them, defeated them, sent them packing, then turned back to Damascus and went back to the siege. Whatever hopes the city of Damascus had, whatever hopes Thomas had that Heraclius would send reinforcements were dashed with that. That right there shows Khalid ibn Walid's genius in battle. The siege continued to drag on as days turned into weeks and the people within Damascus were starting to get worried. 
Rations were running low. Nerves were starting to get frayed. The people began to question Thomas's rule, and some of them even talked to him about surrendering to Khalid ibn Walid and saying, hey, paying jizya to one guy is the same thing as paying taxes to another guy. We heard these Muslims are pretty fair once they conquer somebody. How about you sue for peace and try to get this siege over and done with? Thomas, however, would have none of it, and he continued to hold out, hoping that some miracle would happen and save him and his city from conquest. As far as any help coming from Heraclius, that would take far too long. He had already tried to send some help with the 12,000 soldiers from Emesa, and that had ended in disaster. It would take him such a long time to build up another force or to get supplies down through there. And who was to say that even if he was able to build that force, that they would be able to get through Khalid ibn Walid's defenses anyway. The last time they tried it, things didn't go so well. And there was no guarantee that things would be any better the next time. Meanwhile, Thomas was trying everything he could to break the Muslim siege short of just giving up and asking for peace. Several times, Thomas tried to break through the Muslim defenses by rushing at the weaker portions of the Muslim forces, but each time the Romans were repulsed and had to rush back into the city. And in one of these battles, Thomas had actually lost one of his eyes. From the Muslim side, however, even though these attacks from Thomas weren't successful, they did succeed in thinning out the Muslim forces. The Muslims still lost several soldiers during these attacks. They were usually done by surprise and the Romans were fighting out of pure desperation. So their attacks were much more wild and vicious than they would have been in a real battle, in a coordinated and structured battle. So in this case, the Muslims actually were suffering some losses from Thomas's attacks. But Thomas could not keep this up forever. He did not have the manpower to do this at all six gates. And even if he was able to break through one of the gates, what then? The most he could hope for was perhaps to make a break for it and get to Emesa and maybe try to gather more forces. He was really in a no-win situation. On the other side, the Muslims, especially Khalid ibn Walid, was getting impatient and frustrated by this long siege. He was tired of losing so many forces from Thomas's random attacks. Even though they weren't seriously hindering the Muslims, he was losing soldiers in a pointless siege. Furthermore, he was concerned that Heraclius would eventually send more troops down there to reinforce Damascus, in which case he would have another problem on his hands. So Khalid ibn Walid also wanted the siege to be over as quickly as possible, but he wanted it to go in his favor. Finally, Khalid ibn Walid caught a break. A disgruntled Roman civilian within Damascus met with Khalid ibn Walid and gave him some crucial information. He informed Khalid ibn Walid of an upcoming holiday in which most of the men in Damascus would participate and in which most of them would get drunk, including the soldiers. This would give Khalid ibn Walid and his men the best opportunity to scale the walls and attack Damascus while most of the soldiers were inebriated. On the night of the celebration, Khalid ibn Walid and several hundred of his soldiers scaled the walls of Damascus and immediately attacked the few soldiers who were not participating in the festivities. 
Now, to understand what happens next, you kind of have to keep in mind that this was a huge city surrounded by walls, but still a big city. Just like in any city, things may happen in one part of the city that would be unknown to people living in another part of the city. Different parts of the city could be miles apart. And so when Khalid ibn Walid scaled the walls and attacked Damascus from within, Abu Ubaidah was at the head of another Muslim force at another part of the city many miles away. In what may have been one of his few mistakes, Khalid ibn Walid didn't have time to coordinate his attack with Abu Ubaidah. So when Khalid ibn Walid and his forces on one side of the city scaled the walls and entered Damascus, Abu Ubaidah was on the other side of the city unaware of what was going on. However, Prince Thomas inside the city, he did know what was going on and he heard immediately when the Muslims began to attack the city. Throughout this long siege, Prince Thomas had gathered intelligence about the different Muslim commanders and officers, and he knew that Abu Ubaidah was less of a military guy and more of a religious guy than Khalid ibn Walid. Prince Thomas knew that if there was any hope, if there was any chance of him getting out of this situation alive, it would come through Abu Ubaidah, the pious companion, the ninth person to accept Islam, and not through Khalid ibn Walid, the ferocious general who had conquered a good portion of Syria and Persia in less than a year. So Prince Thomas immediately sent word to Abu Ubaidah asking him, for peace and they would agree to accept the jizya and no longer fight. Abu Ubaidah had no idea that Khalid ibn Walid had already entered the city and was well on his way to conquering things. And once they start conquering stuff, time for peace talks are over. So Abu Ubaidah agreed to meet with Prince Thomas and they met in the center of the city. They concluded a peace agreement just as Khalid ibn Walid and his soldiers came bursting into the capital after fighting their way through the entire city and was just getting ready to start killing everyone in sight. So you can imagine the surprise when Khalid ibn Walid rushes into the primary capital building of Damascus and comes face to face with Abu Ubaidah shaking hands with Prince Thomas. The two leaders were looking at each other like, what is going on here? Abu Abeda says, we just concluded a peace agreement. They've agreed to pay the jizya. Khalid ibn Walid is like, jizya, my foot. I just conquered half the city. These people are slaves. <laughs> Their property is mine. We've conquered the city. For a second there, for more than a second actually, there was a serious tension. You can kind of imagine these two really popular leaders staring at each other and wondering who would actually take precedence here. The one who was the ninth person to accept Islam or the military genius who was the one actually in charge. The thing is, from Abu Ubaidah's perspective, he was offered an opportunity to conclude this thing peacefully. And once he had given Prince Thomas his word, the Muslims can't go back on their word. So even though Khalid ibn Walid was in a full battle mode, he had to very reluctantly, and I do mean reluctantly, accept Abu Ubaidah's peace agreement. So the people of Damascus were spared and their wealth was saved and they agreed to pay the Muslims the jizya and Damascus became part of the Muslim empire. 
Prince Thomas and his family were ordered to leave Damascus and all of his soldiers as well. And Khalid ibn Walid made Yazid ibn Abu Sufyan the governor of Damascus. When Yazid died, his younger brother Muawiyah would become governor of Damascus and all of Syria. Muawiyah would also go on to become the fifth caliph of the Muslim world, and he would move the Muslim capital from Medina to Damascus, which would become the seat of the Umayyad dynasty for over a century. But that's a story for a later episode. Meanwhile, back in Medina, things were changing rapidly. Most importantly, Abu Bakr had fallen sick. He had caught a fever and it continued to worsen and he did not recover over the next two weeks. All of this was happening while Khalid ibn Walid and his army were still mired at the siege of Damascus. However, at some point it became clear that Abu Bakr would not recover and he knew it was time to name a successor. He called all of his closest companions and he began to question them as to their opinion of the next leader. The person that he had in mind, however, was Omar ibn al-Khattab, who was his closest advisor, as Abu Bakr had been Prophet Muhammad's closest advisor during his time. Most of the companions of Abu Bakr agreed that Omar ibn al-Khattab would make a fine caliph. However, some did express concern about Omar's strictness. Eventually, Abu Bakr decided that Omar would be the best person to succeed him, and he declared in his will that Omar would become the caliph after his death. Let's read Abu Bakr's last will in which he declares Omar ibn Khattab as his successor as the caliph of the Muslim world. This is the pledge which I, the caliph of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, have made at a time when his last hour in this world is at hand and the first hour of the hereafter is approaching fast. In such a state, even a disbeliever comes to believe and a transgressor too attains conviction. I have appointed Omar ibn al-Khattab to be your caliph, and I have never fallen short of your expectation in doing good for you all. Thus... If Omar takes to justice and endurance, it is quite within my knowledge. If he commits anything wrong, I am unaware of the unseen. What I have decided upon is nothing but good. Everyone has to face the consequences of his deeds. Those who have wronged will come to know by what overturning they will be overturned. And then Abu Bakr recited a verse from the Quran, chapter 26, verse 227. Those who have wronged will come to know by what overturning they will be overturned. And with that, Omar ibn al-Khattab was named as the successor of Abu Bakr, who was the successor of Prophet Muhammad wasallam. Abu Bakr died after having been caliph for roughly two and a half years. In that time, he was able to set the growing Muslim empire on a strong foothold and, most importantly, keep it together when it was on the verge of falling apart. This is most exemplary in his dealing with the wars of apostasy and putting down that rebellion, and then further exemplified in the expansion of the Muslim borders deep into Persian and Syrian territory. During Abu Bakr's reign, Muslim life and culture remained pretty much the same as it was during the time of Prophet Muhammad Things were very simple and mostly tribal-based. After all, Abu Bakr died just a few years after Prophet Muhammad died. However, under the caliphate of Omar ibn al-Khattab, 
things would change dramatically within the Muslim world. It would become a much more mature empire. After Abu Bakr died and Omar became the caliph, one of the first things he did was perhaps the most shocking thing he did. He removed the general of the Muslim armies, the quote-unquote sword of Allah, from his post. He removed Khalid ibn Walid from the head of the Muslim armies. This command for Khalid ibn Walid to step down as general actually came during the siege of Damascus. However, by the time Khalid ibn Walid received the message from Omar informing him that he had to step down, the Muslims were already well into the siege and Khalid ibn Walid was concerned that him turning over power to Abu Ubaidah would cause disunion and problems within the ring. So he kept it secret for a few days until the siege was over and then he informed Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah of Caliph Omar's decision. Now, there are probably many ideas and speculations regarding what drove Omar to remove Khalid ibn Walid from his post. The most popular and orthodox Muslim view is that there were no hard feelings between Omar and Khalid ibn Walid. They had their disagreements, but Omar did not do this based on spite. Muslim scholars who follow this view, they would say that at this point in time, the Muslim community had developed beyond their tribal basis. They were now becoming much more mature. They were dealing with a true bureaucracy and they needed to develop professional armies, not the ragtag organized mobs that I described earlier. The Muslim empire was expanding and bringing in all of these new cultures and traditions into their fold. They needed a leader a general who was not just a fighter and a bruiser like Khalid ibn Walid was. They needed a leader, a general who could bring them success, not just through the sword, but also through diplomacy. That's the primary idea regarding the dismissal of Khalid ibn Walid. And there are also those within that same orthodox school of thought who say that Omar dismissed Khalid ibn Walid because too many people were giving Khalid the credit for their victories rather than giving the credit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Omar wanted to show people, wanted to show the Muslims that they would be victorious with or without Khalid so long as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decreed victory for them. The other idea the opposing thought regarding Khalid ibn Walid's dismissal by Omar ibn Khattab was that there was animosity between them. There are some stories that cite animosity and friction between Omar ibn Khattab and Khalid ibn Walid going back several years. And of course, we have seen in previous discussions during this series of battles by Khalid ibn Walid how Omar was very upset regarding some of the actions that Khalid ibn Walid did, both during the wars of apostasy as well as the war in Persia and then going on into Syria. So there was already a lot of reservations in Omar's mind regarding Khalid ibn Walid. Whether there was friction going back several years all the way to their childhood, as some literature suggests, that may or may not be true. But certainly, I do believe that Omar had some problems or some hesitancy regarding the leadership of Khalid ibn Walid, and he wanted someone who would take the Muslim world in a different direction militarily. Whatever the case, Certainly, when people heard about Omar's decision, there was a lot of disapproval. 
Not everyone was in unanimous agreement with Omar's decision to remove Khalid ibn Walid. But I have to at least give this much of my own opinion that while I do agree and I do believe that Omar had problems with Khalid's leadership, otherwise he would not have dismissed him, I don't think it was just done purely out of spite, simply out of dislike for Khalid ibn Walid. I believe that there was good reason for Omar doing this. I think he really just did want a more diplomatic general rather than someone who was just going to slice everyone to pieces. And he also wanted to show people that the Muslims could win without Khalid ibn Ali. But at the same time, he may have also, and I do strongly believe this, that he definitely did disagree with some of the moves, some of the actions that Khalid had taken in the past. So Omar removed Khalid ibn Walid as general of the Muslim armies and appointed Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah as the general of the Muslim armies in Syria instead. And he encouraged his soldiers to continue the fight in Syria. However, by now the Muslims had probably stretched themselves too thin. As we mentioned earlier, definitely the Arabs were very good at maintaining campaigns far away from home. They were able to survive and be very effective without a supply chain, without a headquarters. But even that has its limitations. At this point in time, they were just stretched too far from Medina. It took too long for messages to go back and forth. Remember, they had to do everything by horse and camel back then. They would just stretch too thin and it was time to roll things back a little bit and get some good footing underground. Furthermore, on the other side of the line, the Romans and the Persians were beginning to overcome their initial shock. Now, they were caught by surprise by how rapidly the Muslims were able to conquer so much of their territory, but eventually... The Romans and the Persians got over that and they began to consolidate their efforts and prepare for a counter strike against the Muslims and attempt to reconquer some of their lost territory. In Persia, for instance, some of those cities that Khalid had captured earlier began to revolt against Muslim rule. At the same time that this was happening, the Persian government itself, the Sassanid dynasty, the Sassanid family, they were a little more settled. The bloodletting and the infighting within the family had finally ceased. No one had tried to kill the emperor and they realized that if they did not work together, the Muslims were going to conquer everything that they had. So they put aside their differences for the time being and began to focus their efforts on trying to remove the Muslims, the Arabs, from their land. And with that, the Persians began to send out armies to retake some of that land that they had lost during the Khalid's campaign in Persia. And in fact, actually, they were successful to a certain extent. During this period of time, when the Persians tried to reconquer much of their land, the Muslims actually lost territory and had to fall back a little bit as the Persians began to get themselves together. Additionally, the Persians and the Romans realized they had a common enemy in the Muslims and they began to synchronize and coordinate their attacks at the same time in order to keep the Muslims fighting on two fronts at once. The Persians sent out an all-out assault on the Muslims at a pivotal battle called the Battle of the Bridge, which was near the Euphrates River. In this battle, the Persians used elephants and they were actually victorious. Neither the Arabs nor their horses 
nor their camels were used to fighting around elephants and the Muslims suffered heavy casualties and even their commander was killed and they lost a lot of territory in this battle. In a series of victories on the Persian side, the Muslims were pushed all the way from the Roman border, the Persian-Roman border, all the way back to the city of Hira, which Khalid ibn Walid had captured almost a year earlier. When Omar ibn Khattab heard about these dramatic losses in Persia, he knew he had to make some serious changes. One of the major changes he had to do was remove the ban that Abu Bakr had put in place on those who took part in the wars of apostasy. Omar needed bodies, he needed men, he needed soldiers, soldiers and that rule from Abu Bakr's was not going to cut it. So Omar made a call to all of the Arab tribes within the Muslim territory to send men and reinforcements to contribute to the battle and he lifted the ban on those tribes that had taken part in the wars of apostasy. All was forgiven, he needed manpower. Omar also took another important step and made one of the most prominent companions still alive at this time, a man named Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, as the primary Muslim general in Iraq, that is Persia. We mentioned how Abu Ubaidah was perhaps the ninth person to accept Islam. Well, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas was perhaps the fourth or fifth person to accept Islam. It all depends on where you place Ali's acceptance of Islam. Some put Ali's acceptance before Abu Bakr, some put it after. But regardless, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas was once again, one of the major companions of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He accepted Islam at 13, and once again, he was among the first five people to accept Islam. That is amazing. He is, of course, one of the 10 companions, Promised Paradise, which you can hear more about by clicking on the link in the show notes at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Syria. So Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, he departed Medina with a force of about 5,000 soldiers. 300 of them were companions of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa and many of them were veterans of some of the major battles during the Prophet's life, including the Battle of Badr. So Omar was pulling out all the stops. He was bringing out the heavy hitters removing all bands, saying we're going to go at this with everything we've got. Some of the prominent people who were part of Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas's army were companions such as Tolha, Zubair, and Salman al-Farisi, Salman the Persian. So as we mentioned earlier, Omar ibn Khattab did kind of want the military to go in a slightly different direction than it had under Khalid ibn Walid. So rather than just rush out into Persia and immediately start fighting, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas actually did sit down with the Persian leadership and try to negotiate some sort of deal. However, the terms of that deal were pretty much the same. Either the Persians convert to Islam and then all is well and good or they pay the jizya and become subjugated people, or they're going to let the sword sort things out. It may sound kind of blunt, but those pretty much were the terms that the Muslims put forth to the Persian Empire. They had beaten them before, and the Muslims knew they could beat them again so long as they were determined what they were going to do. 
They negotiated for roughly three months while the Persian general, his name was Rostam, while he tried to delay things out, hoping that the Persian government would be able to get their military together and give him enough forces where he could strike at the Muslims decisively. But in the end, none of that really mattered because from Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas's point of view, the terms were always the same. The Persians would come by and say, we'll give you this and we'll give you that. But every time they were just shot down by Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas's continuous and steadfast demands. Since Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas wouldn't budge, it ultimately led to the two sides meeting in battle once again. And this time, the Muslims decided not to battle on the bridge or on the Persian side of the Euphrates River as they had done before when they suffered so many losses. They decided to allow the Persians to cross over to their side of the Euphrates River and deal with things that way. We will discuss the outcome of this battle in the next episode of the Islamic History Podcast, inshallah. For the time being, however, let's go over to Syria and see how things are going over there. In Syria, the Muslims continue to push further north, but there were still several areas to the south that they had not actually conquered yet. Remember, we mentioned how Khalid ibn Walid had avoided the city of Jerusalem. The good thing about this strategy, at least from the Muslim point of view, is that it cut off the Roman territories in the north from the Roman territories in the south meaning that they would find it very difficult to communicate and supply each other. The difficult part, however, as far as the Muslim perspective is concerned, is that now the Muslim armies had to fight on two fronts. They not only had to fight the Romans in the north, they also had to fight those Romans still surviving, still fighting in the south. With the Muslim army spread so thin in this way, Heraclius realized that he had a golden opportunity to strike at the Muslims and hopefully, from his perspective at least, push them out of his land for good. So in time, Heraclius was able to put together a massive force and prepare a decisive counterattack against the Muslim armies. That as well, we will discuss in the next episode of the Islamic History Podcast, inshallah. For now, however, let's discuss some of the major points of Omar ibn al-Khattab's caliphate, the time that he was the ruler of the Muslim world. For many people, this period of time that Omar ruled, one decade, ten years, for many people, this is considered the golden age of Islam. Before we discuss his accomplishments and his achievements, let's actually discuss the title that Omar eventually took upon himself. For one thing, of course, he was called the Caliph. Caliph, as we mentioned before, it literally means successor, someone who succeeds someone else. So Abu Bakr was the first Caliph as he succeeded Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Omar ibn Khattab was the second caliph as he succeeded Abu Bakr, who succeeded the prophet. However, Omar ibn Khattab, he also took on another title, one that would stick with the leaders of the Muslim world for the next 1,000 years, that was called Amir al-Mu'minin, or the commander of the believers. All subsequent caliphs and rulers of the Muslim world would adopt the same title. 
under Omar's rule, the Muslim empire began to behave a lot more like a traditional state. However, Islam also flourished during this time. It's not like the state became more state-like and Islam became less prevalent. In fact, Islam flourished, whereas the Muslim empire became more professional, modern, and mature. As we will see in the upcoming episodes, the Muslim conquest did continue further into Syria and Persia, and the wealth from those two respective regions just flowed into Medina, making the Muslim empire quite wealthy. Omar realized that having these large additions come into the Muslim world, that he had a responsibility to deal with them in a fair and just manner. So he decided to divide them up into various segments in order to make them easier to govern. So by the time he died, 10 years later, there were eight different provinces or states or mini kingdoms within the Muslim empire. Another thing that I've noticed while reading stories of this time is that the use of barter, as we mentioned earlier in the last episode during the time of Abu Bakr, it became much less prevalent during the time of Omar ibn al-Khattab. The Muslim empire was just growing well into a mature nation and barter was just not going to cut it anymore. Most of the stories that I hear, that I've read during this period of time, they almost always include some form of currency, either silver or or gold coins. The judicial system under Omar ibn Khattab also progressed further. There were already judges during the time of Abu Bakr, and Omar continued this practice, but he made it much more systematized and organized. One of the most wise things he did was separate the judges from the executive department, basically himself. So one of the most amazing things about his caliphate is because the judges were completely independent from the caliph or the executive branch, which is Omar ibn Khattab. He found himself brought before the judges on several occasions. There are many people who, even though Omar ibn Khattab was the caliph and he had this massive army at his command, there were people who still found reason to bring him before a judge. And because the judges were independent, they did not have any problem calling Omar to answer against the charges brought against him. And sometimes he lost those cases. Compare that to today's world. How often will you see a leader of a nation anywhere, Muslim or otherwise, being brought before a judge unless it's by force where that leader was overthrown and then he's brought before a tribunal. That never happens unless there's been a coup. These same judges, Omar made sure that they were paid large salaries in order that they would not be suspect to bribery. And in another example of Omar's fairness, justice, and righteousness, non-Muslims living within the Muslim territory, and there were quite a few, they were not judged by Islamic law. Instead, they were judged according to their faith and their leaders, the leaders of those non-Muslim communities, they were responsible for administering justice. So contrary to popular belief, wine and alcohol flowed within the Muslim lands. That's because the non-Muslims within those lands were allowed to have them because Islam could not be forced upon them. Now, it was not very popular in the Muslim communities, but within the non-Muslim parts of the Muslim empire, where non-Muslim communities live, if according to their scripture and their beliefs, 
alcohol was permissible, it was allowed to have it so long as they did not sell to Muslims. Furthermore, much of this new land that came under the Muslim control, it wasn't confiscated. It's not like the Muslims and Umar ibn Khattab and the companions took this land from the non-Muslims who were living it there before and made it their own. Instead, Omar made sure that the only lands that the conquering Muslims could take were public lands that had previously belonged to the Roman or Persian governments. Private lands, however, were left alone. Churches, synagogues, religious temples were also left alone. Now, Muslims who moved into these new areas, they were allowed to buy the land from non-Muslim landholders if they wanted to, but they couldn't just go in there and seize it. In actuality, some of these policies angered some of the soldiers fighting in the Muslim armies because they conquered all of this land and they were used to the conquered land and spoils of war being divided up among both the state as well as the soldiers. So during the time of Khalid ibn Walid, there were many soldiers who claimed huge tracts of land. These were acres and acres of land that they had conquered during the time of Khalid ibn Walid. However, Omar confiscated these lands from the Muslim soldiers and gave them away to people who needed them. And if he found out that these lands were taken from non-Muslims who had lived there before, then he would actually make sure that they were returned to those non-Muslims that it previously belonged to. And speaking of the division of the spoils of war, the Muslim army became more of a professional standing army. So there was no more of the old fashioned, even though it is mentioned in the Quran, there was no more of the old fashioned method of the soldiers getting one fifth of the spoils of war. The soldiers received a stipend and a salary and they were properly trained and outfitted. The ragtag mob that we had spoken of earlier was gone under the caliph of Omar ibn al-Khattab. For all intents and purposes, this did not seem to hinder their success at all. One of the most popular attributes of Omar ibn al-Khattab as caliph was his righteousness and his justice. One of the things that he made sure happened during his rule was a stipend system for the veterans of the Battle of Badr as well as the members of the Prophet's family. But the thing about Omar is that he kept expanding this stipend system and expanding it and expanding it further and further and further until eventually everyone who lived in Medina, both free and slave, were receiving a stipend. Once again, money and wealth was just flowing into Medina and there was more than enough money for everybody. And Omar felt it was his responsibility to give it away, particularly to the residents of Medina. And speaking of money, we've mentioned the jizya several times in these episodes. But we should know that under Omar ibn al-Khattab, those non-Muslims who were too poor to pay the jizya, they were exempt from it. And of course, there are many stories of Omar walking through the streets of Medina at night, kind of undercover, trying to see and trying to know firsthand how the people who lived under his rule were faring. He would walk through the streets listening for stories of oppression, of poverty, of suffering, and hoping that there was some way that he could alleviate matters for those people. There are so many stories of him 
walking through the streets of Medina, coming upon a person or a family who was suffering for whatever reason, either through poverty or some form of injustice, and Omar would immediately take action. These people would complain to Omar about their suffering, not knowing who he was. They didn't know that he was the caliph, that he was Amir al-Mu'minin. But when he found these things out, he immediately tried to rectify them. He took it as his responsibility to make sure that those who lived under his rule did not suffer any form of oppression whatsoever, even if it was unintentional from himself. In addition to these various social improvements that Omar made, he also contributed to the development of the Islamic religion in and of itself. Two things in particular that Omar ibn al-Khattab is responsible for are Salatul Tarawih as well as the Islamic calendar. Now, Salatul Tarawih, you know that that is the night prayer that is made during the month of Ramadan after Salatul Isha and before Salatul Fajr. This prayer existed before the time of Omar ibn al-Khattab. It existed even during the time of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But during the Prophet's life, it was only prayed in congregation a few times. As the hadith goes, as the story goes... Omar came into the masjid in Medina one night during Ramadan and saw everyone making tarawih separately and he didn't really like seeing that and so he made them all come together into one jamaat, into one group. And since that time, the tarawih was always prayed as a congregation, even though, of course, Islamically speaking, it is permissible to make the tarawih on your own individually. But collectively is the standard practice throughout most of the Muslim world. And the second thing is the calendar. Now, before Omar's time, the Muslims always had months and the Arabs had months before they became Muslims. The month of Ramadan is mentioned in the Quran. And that was, of course, revealed long before Omar ibn Khattab became the caliph. The month of Ramadan is mentioned as well as several other months are mentioned in the Quran and throughout the hadith of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So the Arabs had months and they had a system where 12 months equaled one year. But what they didn't have was an effective method of keeping track of the years. We keep track of years by giving them numbers. This is currently the year 2015. In a few weeks, it will be the year 2016, so forth and so on. The Arabs didn't have that. If they had to acknowledge a certain year, they would mostly call that year by some major event that took place within that year. So the year that Abraha attacked the Kaaba and invaded Mecca with his elephants, it was called the year of the elephant. However, that system, while it may work in the tribal lands and among a few tribes, that is not going to work for an empire covering hundreds upon thousands of miles. You need something much more unified and much easier to understand. So it was Omar who established the hijra of Prophet Muhammad from Mecca to Medina as year one of the Islamic calendar. So at the time that Omar established this calendar, he, could, he knew that it was roughly 14 years after the Hijra. He was able to call it year 14. And from that point on, the Muslim calendar has continued to roll forward. So we are now in the year 1437 AH or 1437 years 
after the hijrah of Prophet Muhammad wasallam, the migration from Mecca to Medina. Finally, under Omar's rule, one of the most important things that happened was the complete conquest of the ancient Sassanid Empire, the Persian Empire, as well as the removal of the Roman Empire from the Arabian Peninsula completely, which we will continue in the next episode of the Islamic History Podcast. Alhamdulillah, I hope you found that beneficial. We are going to continue with the story in the next episode of the Islamic History Podcast. But for now, let's talk some business as far as this podcast and this episode is concerned. First of all, so far, we've been going a lot slower than what I expected to. Well, not a lot slower. I would say maybe a little bit slower than what I expected. Now, I know you might be one of those people who prefer that I would spend much more time on the individuals and the characters within the story, particularly famous people like Omar and Khalid ibn Walid. And truthfully, I wouldn't mind doing that myself. However, the reality is I have a self-imposed schedule for this podcast. So we're going to have to start speeding things up a bit. So even though Omar's caliphate, his reign as ruler of the Muslim world lasted for roughly a decade, we won't be spending much time on the details of his caliphate. What you got in this episode so far is pretty much the extent of what you're going to get. We're going to go back into the conquest and discuss how the Muslims were able to conquer the rest of Persia and the rest of Syria, but we're not going to really get into the nitty gritty details of Omar's caliphate. There's just not enough time. My plan is to cover these first 100 years of Islamic history after the Prophet's death in roughly 14 episodes. Here we are on the fourth episode and I've only gone through about four years right now. So we got to speed things up a bit. Yeah, all that has happened so far since the first episode of the second season of the Islamic History Podcast all of that has only taken place over the first four years after Prophet Muhammad's death. So I have to get through another 96 years in roughly 10 episodes. And then I still got to start preparing for the next season of this podcast in which we will focus on the history of the Nation of Islam, the African-American quasi-militant, quasi-Islamic group in North America. Now, we mentioned last week how my work schedule was kind of making this whole thing sort of difficult because 40 hours a week is 40 hours a week. It's rough to fit a couple of hours. It takes several hours actually to do this podcast. I'll say maybe about five to 10 hours to do the podcast. It's hard to find the time to squeeze that in. So there is a good thing about having my job that even though it keeps me from being consistent, at least as consistent as I would like with this podcast, the good thing is that I no longer have to do these podcasts for money. There was a time not too long ago when I was actually hoping to make and trying actually to make a full income from this podcast. That is no longer the case. The The downside about trying to make a living from this podcast or perhaps any creative endeavor is that you inc you're inclined to do things for money because you got to make that next paycheck. You got to make that money, you got to pay those bills. And so I was inclined and I was pressured to do things that I hoped or felt would bring in more revenue 
rather than doing those things that I just felt passionate and really wanted to do. Now that I do have a steady job, even though once again, it does hold me back from being consistent with the podcast, I am able to do projects and do topics that I truly, truly enjoy. And I'm also able to plan ahead in ways that money is not really a concern. I will plan ahead based on what I think will be enjoyable for me as a host of a podcast. And if I enjoy it, doing it, I truly believe that you will find that more interesting in the long run, inshallah. That being said, you may have noticed if you've been a long time listener of this podcast that I try to generate income through something called the Islamic Learning Materials Club, which is like a private membership where you pay for monthly access to it and get exclusive content. The Islamic Learning Materials Club still exists, but I don't really push it as a primary generative income, which is why you don't hear the commercials any longer. But it still exists and I still do hope to make some decent money from this podcast, from this endeavor. But once again, it's not my primary goal any longer. It's not such a a mandatory or absolutely necessary thing. If I do, alhamdulillah. If I don't, alhamdulillah also. With that being said, however, I will be including more exclusive content just for members of the club, which, by the way, the membership is fairly inexpensive, just $1 for the first month and $7 every month after that. And there's already quite a bit of exclusive content as far as khutbahs and videos and some classes I've done before. But I will admit it hasn't been updated in quite a while, but the information is there. Inshallah, I will hope my hope is, my plan is, and I am currently preparing for it, is to put a series on the Soviet-Afghan war of the late 1970s, early 1980s as exclusive content for members only on that club. So it's not ready yet. I'll let you know, inshallah. But if you want to get a head start on some of the other great stuff we have on the Islamic Learning Materials Club, I strongly encourage you and hope that you would go ahead and join and become a part of it. And inshallah, when the podcast on the Soviet-Afghan war is available, you will be privy to that as well. Think about that, inshallah, if you want to. That's one way to support, of course, is financially by joining the Islamic Learning Materials Club. Another way is much less intrusive is simply to subscribe on iTunes. Last podcast episode, I encouraged everyone to subscribe as much as possible. And when you did that, when so many people subscribed, this podcast was number 17. Number 17 out of all the thousands of Islamic podcasts. This podcast was number 17 on Islamic podcasts in iTunes. That's pretty remarkable. I have never been that high. This podcast has never ranked that high before. And first and foremost, I think Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but I also thank you listeners who subscribed and helped to push us up like that. And that's gone down because, you know, I haven't put out a podcast in a couple of weeks. And so things have gone down, but I'm certain that inshallah, for those of you who did not who have not subscribed yet, if you can go ahead and go into iTunes and subscribe, whether you do it through your phone, through your iPad, or through your computer, somehow or another, try to subscribe to the Islamic History Podcast. Try to subscribe to this podcast. Number one, the most important reason is that don't worry about my rankings and all. You'll get the content on a regular basis. That's the most important thing. I mean, you subscribe to the podcast and it comes right to your phone, boom, just like that or your PC or iPad, whatever it is you listen on. Another thing is that it does help to push the podcast up more and makes it more open and more available to more people. And one of the things, uh, I'm going to have to get a little political here. 
One of the problems that I believe is really hurting the Muslim world right now, particularly the English-speaking Muslim world, is that we don't have access to much Islamic education. Now, granted, this is not the same thing as taking a fit course and taking a course on the uh, Hadith and Tafsir al-Quran and stuff like that. This is not the same thing, but there's a lot of misconceptions and misperceptions about Islam, especially Islamic history, from both Muslims and non-Muslims. And I hope that, inshallah, this can help clarify some of these misconceptions and help us all understand how things were done. And truth be told, some of the things that we hear may not be comfortable to you, but it is history and it is important to know it and learn how to deal with it. And so, inshallah, I hope that you would feel that this information is viable to you and others. And if you can subscribe on iTunes, that will help to make this better because quite frankly, there aren't that many English language Islamic podcasts out there. Not good ones, at least. There really aren't that many. So really try to do that, inshallah, to help us out. All right. Last thing before wrapping up, we do have a new review on iTunes from a longtime listener. And this is from a listener called named Sweet Pea Inc., and I know who that is. Alhamdulillah, she has been a, lo- a long time listening to this podcast and has helped the podcast in many ways. And I thank her for her help and support, as well as her following comments, which read as follows. This podcast is both educational and entertaining. I can't express how appreciative of the time and effort that Brother Mutaki has put into educating us on our dean. May Allah forgive, preserve, and bless him immensely. I mean, thank you, Mutaki. You are appreciated. Well, alhamdulillah. Thank you, sister. She went, She is once again a longtime supporter of the show going all the way back to 2013. Since such a long time ago, huh? Back before, man, this show has gone through quite a few iterations since then. And alhamdulillah, I thank the sister for her help and support. Links to past episodes of this podcast regarding the lives of Abu Bakr and Omar and Sa'ad ibn Abi Bakas and Abu Ubaidah ibn Jarrah are all available on the show notes for this episode, which you can find at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Syria. And speaking of Islamic education, when my kids were young, they were just young little Ismail's. They used to watch this very popular Muslim show called Adam's World about a little Muslim puppet. And those videos often included lots of songs that would play consistently. So my kids would pop in the DVD or the, the videotape. This was several years ago. And they would play this, these, these shows of Adam's World. And these songs would just play over and over and over again until eventually they got stuck in my head. One of these songs that have remained stuck in my head for all of these years, and it reminds me of my family when we were much younger, my kids when they were much younger. It reminds me of how we are growing older and moving on with life. My kids, who were just very, very young back then, are now approaching the teenage years. One of My oldest son is now 15. And uh, listening to these songs sometimes brings back memories and the ideas and the thoughts I had back when my kids were just very, very young. So we're going to write up with one of my favorite songs from Adam's World called Thank You Allah. So here we go, writing out with Thank You Allah from Adam's World. Whenever I am sad 